0: is a journey into sound brought to you in living color it's happening i can feel it how would you explain oh, it it's beautiful god it's god i say god how do you like that
1: why it's monstrous.
0: thank you very much
1: the fault dear buddhist is not in our stars but in ourselves good
0: luck we care about your world my guest is peter canova He's the author of the award-winning First Souls Trilogy. He's the host of the Quantum Spirituality Podcast, and his new book that we'll be talking about is Quantum Spirituality, Science, Gnostic Mysticism, and Connecting with Source Consciousness, which is a fascinating cross-pollination of ancient Gnosticism, Jungian depth psychology, and quantum physics to help us understand the true nature of the universe. So, Peter, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour.
1: Thanks. Nice to be here.
0: So one of the opening lines in the book is, if you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what you don't bring forth will destroy you. Could you talk about that?
1: Yeah, that's a quote from the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas, and it reflects uh, something that Carl Jung said along very similar lines. And really, I believe what it's talking about is that we contain really all the knowledge and all the power of the universe within us, but in such a diluted state and a diluted form that we've really forgotten what we are, where we came from, and the fact that the dimension that we're in is just one of many dimensions and this knowledge staying dormant inside us really makes us more subject to the whims of fate blown around kind of like leaves in the winds of fate but to the extent that we recover this knowledge inside of us and we take what's in our subconscious and bring it to our consciousness and are able to utilize this tremendous knowledge and information we begin to become the masters of our own destiny. And that's essentially what they were saying 2,000 years ago in the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas. And almost an exact same quote was issued by Carl Jung, which is also in the book, I think right next to the quote that you just talked about, reflected in uh, depth psychology, saying the same thing. The more we make what's in our unconscious conscious, the better off that we are.
0: And also by not recognizing that part of ourselves, we actually subject ourselves to the whims of our ego. And that's, that's the destructive effect that can happen in our lives.
1: The ego is a construct that we have developed in order to cope with the material world, the material existence that we find ourselves in. Now, that's all well and good, assuming that material existence is the only thing there is, but it isn't. Material existence is actually the bottom rung of a ladder with many levels of consciousness preceding it. And at those higher levels of consciousness, you don't, uh, or you would like to think anyway, that the ego doesn't play such a role that we have a, a broader perspective on what existence is all about. And so that we understand really that we're part of a unity. And when you understand that you're a bigger part of a unity, ego tends to take a back seat because ego is all about managing and manipulating the environment for the individual. So to the extent that we raise our consciousness, ego starts to recede or the elements of ego, the results of ego start to recede in the background.
0: Yeah. And in the materialist perspective, the ego is tends to be worshipped as as the true representative of reality as as opposed to what it really is, is just a tool. And if we make the tool the master, then we we create a, a lot of problems for ourselves.
1: Well, yeah, the Gnostics would liken that to worshiping false gods. We've made, you know, these constructs in our own mind, which are an error, thinking that they're sort of the be-all end-all of existence. And in fact, they're just the opposite. They're probably more in the bottom of the ladder in terms of the scale of consciousness. And the Gnostics even felt that in the Old Testament, the Old Testament God, Yahweh, the, the jealous, vindictive God that uh, essentially condoned and sanctioned killing people and so forth and so on, that that, that God was a outer reflection of the collective human ego, the frailties and the flaws of the collective human ego. It was a God that was made in the image of flawed human ego, rather than the true supreme consciousness or supreme being, which is more what Jesus was describing in the New Testament, a God of, a God of love, a God of mercy, a God of, basically a God of a higher consciousness.
0: Yeah, now that you mentioned that, it's fascinating how the Christian church actually pretty much rejected and suppressed most of the teachings of Jesus, except keeping his name and also resurrecting the old and what you refer to as the archonic God of the Old Testament, which was totally contrary to Jesus' teachings.
1: It has to do with the fact that early Christianity was divided into two main branches or two streams. There was the inner inner mystical tradition, and then there was the outer tradition. The original Christian message, Jesus was teaching a Gnostic message. And the way we know this, that he was teaching a mystical message, is right in the Bible itself. It says that unto the masses he taught in parables, but unto the disciples he gave the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And we also have verification from early church fathers like Clement and Origen, who were both bishops, of uh, Alexandria, that Jesus indeed had a mystical teaching, but that it was not given to the masses for fear that they would not misunderstand or they would abuse the information. So the church, the early church, developed in such a way that there was a body of mystical teaching and followers of that mystical teaching who were primarily Gnostically oriented. And then there was the outer church, which uh, was a church of lesser understanding of the mysteries. And so it it was more subject to agendas, it was more subject to the typical things that human beings do, which is setting up hierarchies and divisions and creating agendas and so forth and so on. And this was greatly amplified when the Roman state essentially absorbed Christianity, and Christianity absorbed elements of the Roman Empire. So the Pope became like an emperor, and the Cardinals became like the Senate, and then you had a whole hierarchy of bishops and other clergy and so forth. And the thing that they were promoting is that they were the intercessors between God and humanity, but the Gnostics or the mystics would say that's ridiculous there. There can be no intercessors between God and humanity, because for one thing, the primary view of the mystical tradition was that we were not creations of God. Now, a creation is something that is separate and apart from its maker. So the puppet Pinocchio was a separate creation from Geppetto, but The mystical church believed in emanation, which is the actual projection of the supreme consciousness of the one consciousness, projecting itself out into different points or frequencies of vibration of consciousness, which eventually resulted in spiritual beings, and then ultimately spiritual beings devolved down into material bodies, which is probably the lowest spiritual experience there is, all the way down into physical forms but this is a big difference. So in other words, there was no original sin in the eyes of the early Christian mystics or Gnostic mystics. The only sin was forgetting what we really are and where we really came from. And the word sin, incidentally, the root of the word sin means to be in error, to be off the mark. It doesn't mean to be bad. It means to be in error or off the mark. You're, you're on a vector that kind of went off on a tangent away from an understanding of the source and of the plan or the will of the source. And that's how essentially the mystical Christians viewed it as opposed to the outer church. And, of course, this whole idea of the lack of necessity for having this whole hierarchical structure was a great threat to the Orthodox Church, what became the Orthodox Church. And the Orthodox Church essentially suppressed and destroyed and later on even eradicated all Gnostic influence, and to the point where, for much of history, all we knew about the Gnostics came through the writings of their opponents. But in 1945, they discovered the Gnostic texts that were buried away in caves near Nag Hammadi, Egypt, and that gave us a direct insight into the voices of the Gnostic masters and what what essentially they were teaching.
0: So could you talk about their teachings and also go more into the Gnostic creation story and perhaps even talk about the thesis you present at the beginning of the book?
1: Well, the Gnostic creation story really embodies the whole central importance of Gnosticism. And essentially, the story says that everything starts with one source. There is one substance. There is one source of all things. And that You can call it God, you can call it the One, you can call it Supreme Consciousness. The names really don't matter. It's all describing the same thing. And that this source, in a desire to know itself, projected other points of consciousness from itself. Now, when you think about it for a second, if you're everything, if the source is everything, there's no way it can really know itself, because to know yourself, you have to have contrast. You have to have some points of contrast. So the source was existing, it was being, but it wasn't experiencing. And in order to experience and understand and reflect upon itself, it projected these other points of consciousness. Now, in traditional Christian terminology, you can call them spiritual beings, angelic beings, the Gnostics called them eons, A-E-O-N-S, which means eternities in Greek. And essentially, these eternities were archetypes, were classic Jungian or, or Platonic archetypes. They were aspects of the mind of the source itself, and they had names like truth, justice, mercy, and wisdom. So you can see from those names that they represented essentially the highest ideals that we, even we as human beings are guided by. But these were essentially spiritual impulses that were centers of conscious awareness in and of themselves. And you can picture them as sort of like, you know, planets revolving around the sun or the concentric layers of an onion revolving in an orbit around the source. And they were in different dimensions and the dimensions were not so much defined by space but they were defined by frequency or vibration of consciousness. So not all of these beings possessed the, the same degree of consciousness. There was a little bit of dilution from each generation of these beings on out. Something like, you know, if you picture making a CD and the original copies have the highest clarity and then the copies of those copies, you know, it degrades a little bit. They all essentially contain the same substance, but in in a somewhat diluted form. This whole idea of limitation... Is critical because in order to experience individuality, limitation of consciousness is a necessity because if these beings didn't possess consciousness in a somewhat limited or diluted form, they would essentially be fully conscious like the source and then they would be reabsorbed back into the source and there would be no individual existence. So for individual existence or individual consciousness to perceive itself, they they had to have limited degrees of consciousness from that of the source that projected them. So, you have these levels of uh, spiritual beings, these eons, and the youngest of them was described with a name Sophia, and Sophia means wisdom in Greek. Now, wisdom plays a big role in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, where you see the name in Proverbs and Job. And the only reason we don't understand the name Sophia is because we receive English translations of the Greek Bible and Sophia is wisdom in in English. So it was called wisdom in the biblical versions that we have. But wisdom declares that I was there at the beginning. I am co-eternal with the father, meaning that she's a high spiritual being. She is the feminine aspect, the wisdom or feminine aspect of God. And Sophia had this great desire to sort of create on her own. And in order to do that, she projects herself into an area that was as yet unorganized by the mind of God. This area was called chaos. And, This is all corresponding to modern quantum science because science has chaos theory. The area that chaos was located in was essentially a description of what modern quantum science calls the quantum foam or the quantum field, which is the area of potential that is full of virtual particles. And we know, for instance, that space itself is not a vacuum because even a vacuum, even a, a traditional vacuum is not empty. It contains these virtual particles or seeds of possibility that can come into being. And that is essentially what quantum science says that we came from. We came from this particles, came from this energy field, this quantum field. So Sophia looks into chaos, into this quantum field. And she says, aha, uh-huh, well, that looks like a place where maybe I can go and create something new. So she projects her essence into chaos. And lo and behold, chaos is not empty. It's seething with these virtual particles. And the astonishing thing is that the Gnostics gave a name to these virtual particles, which sounds very scientific and makes sense today. It was called proto matter that which exists before matter, matter and potential, because that's what virtual particles are. Virtual particles are matter and potential. So Sophia projects herself into chaos and these virtual particles flock to her like iron filings would flock to a magnet and they engulf her and they start to slow down her high energy. They start absorbing her high energy and her energy activates these virtual particles, even as her energy itself is being slowed down or subsumed. And she cries out to heaven and she says, save me. I am becoming as lead. I am becoming as matter. Save me from this shadow of matter. Now, this may not make a lot of sense to people unless you understand some very startling things about quantum physics. So let's back up for a second. We know, number one, that Sophia came from this dimension where these aeons or these spiritual beings were revolving around the source. And those essentially are parallel dimensions. Each of those beings was a dimension unto themselves, a dimension of conscious thought or vibration unto themselves. So the first thing the Gnostics did was they gave a description of what parallel dimensions were all about. The next thing is the Gnostics described an area that was chaotic. In other words, it was unformed as of yet, which is what science calls the quantum field or the quantum potential. And in this quantum potential were virtual particles, which the Gnostics called proto-matter, that that which precedes matter. Okay. So Sophia, when she starts to have her energy slow down, she's becoming matter. It says right in the text, I am becoming matter. Now, this is an astonishing, and I mean really astonishing, description of the God particle. Now, your listeners may have heard of the God particle. It was in the news quite a bit several years ago when they theorized for a long time, and they finally discovered it at the Large Hadron Collider in Switzerland, underground, and essentially, our universe is surrounded by a field called the Higgs field. And within that field are these virtual particles called Higgs bosons. And when energy enters into our universe, and incidentally, scientists have no idea what energy is. They can manipulate it. They can use it to certain ends, but they don't know where it comes from. And they really and truly don't know what it is. So these energies enter our universe. And when they enter the universe, the Higgs bosons attach themselves. They swarm to these energies like iron filings to a magnet, just like the protomatter went to Sophia. And they slow these energies down. And as these energies slow down in vibration, that's when they start to take on mass and they become matter. So the God particle describes matter energy conversion in the exact same terms that the Gnostics described what happened with Sophia and the proto matter, the virtual particles. So the story of Sophia embodies so many features of modern quantum physics. And one of the most startling ones is the action of the God particle. Now, it doesn't stop there. Because the texts say, listen, matter, this newly formed matter, cannot coexist with the higher spiritual vibration. So it's expelled and set apart in a great disturbance and projected out elsewhere. Now, this is a perfect description of the Big Bang, because the Big Bang was the explosion of something, our universe, something, material universe, from virtually nothing, from thin air. Now, the scientists don't know what was on the other side of the Big Bang. The Gnostics are describing what was. And so, you know, look at what we have here in the, in the creation story of Sophia. We have a description of parallel universes, the God particle, the Big Bang, and other things that I won't go into, like symmetry breaking and everything else, because that would probably put, put your audience to sleep with a long list of things. But I'm just highlighting the major points of how the Gnostic creation story Essentially was a textbook guide to most of the modern theories of modern quantum physics.
0: Yeah, this is what made your book so fascinating to read. And another correlation with that is the notion of like the falling of, let's say, the angel Lucifer. Sounds like a parallel of what you just described.
1: Well, there there are certainly parallels to be made there. Whereas in Lucifer, you know, it was described more in terms of evil and rebellion. In the Gnostic story, Sophia's actions were not intentional evil. They were merely a departure from the will of the one to explore the will of the self. In other words, to place the desire for self-experience over the desire of the common experience. And Sophia fell into... This eventually it, it went through really through several dimensions through a psychic dimension and dimensions of finer matter until ultimately Sophia and the other spiritual beings that followed her essentially entered into physical forms, which is the lowest form of spiritual experience. So, you know, there definitely are parallels there, though, in the Gnostic story of Sophia, there was no you know, apparent intent of evil. Now, not to say that evil did not enter into the picture. It does enter into the picture because as part of individuality, individuality in extreme is when people are so divorced from an awareness of their source, when beings or souls are so divorced from an awareness of their source that they feel that they can harm others, do harmful things, in order to gratify the needs of the ego or the self, as we talked about earlier. And that's where you start to shade into actions that could be called evil. But, you know, these things are all a spectrum, you know, they're not just black and white, they're a whole spectrum, you know, ranging from, you know, just uh, misunderstanding selfishness all the way up to, you know, all the way up to evil. But yeah, certainly there are apparent parallels to to that in the biblical story of Lucifer.
0: Yeah. And when I was thinking of Lucifer, I I don't, automatically go to evil because I agree with you that evil is a progressive degeneration or, or further separation from our understanding of ourselves. And the more we become identified with our separate sense of self, the more that that can spiral out of control or snowball. Well,
1: even, even in the earlier Orthodox Christian views, or going back even further, in the J- Judaic views of the devil, the devil was not evil, it was the angel of opposition. And the Gnostics had the same equivalent of opposition in a, in a being they called the Archon, A-R-C-H-O-N. And the angel of opposition, essentially, the function of the angel of opposition was to create obstacles. For the souls to overcome and grow in strength until eventually they were purified to the point where they could re-enter the divine consciousness. They could re-enter the sphere of divine consciousness. So essentially, the original concept of the devil was a triggering mechanism essentially to help souls grow into a higher state rather than you know this cloven hoofed horned, you know, being of evil. That was not the original conception of the devil or Lucifer.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating that to think of the devil as as kind of like an archetypal initiator for humanity, for human beings, something that we lack in our culture.
1: Yeah, and you know, it's very probable that these influences that we call, you know, demonic beings are undesirable forces are really projections of our collective ignorance, our collective shadow, our collective unconscious selves.
0: Right. And the more that we engage in our lives in service to our separate sense of self, as opposed to in service to the common good or, or the whole, um, the more we, we devolve toward the potential of evil and the actual manifestation of what we could call evil.
1: Yes that's true but we shouldn't negate the self by any any means improvement of the self is an improvement of the collective good so there's nothing wrong with the self pursuing interest that will make itself grow in a more you know more conscious way i think sometimes people put a little too much emphasis on collectivism as opposed to you know the individual and and, and you know there's a balance there and I think that individual growth and growth of the self has to precede any understanding about how that self participates in the collective.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But there needs to be a balance. It's like there needs to be a little more emphasis on on the common good than just our own selfish nature.
1: Yeah, I think as things have evolved today, I think that's true.
0: There's also the parallel to dark energy and dark matter. Could you talk about that in relation to all of this?
1: Well, the universe as we know it is composed of very little of what we call matter, visible matter, and the dark energy and dark matter by far constitute the majority of the components of universal reality. And they kind of work in opposite ways. Dark matter is viewed as that which helps things cohere, makes galaxies cluster, keeps things together from flying apart. Dark energy is what they're accounting for, the fact that the universe seems to be perpetually expanding. So in the Gnostic sense, the energies that were created after Sophia's fall into chaos it didn't go directly you know into matter as we know it when sophia cried out i'm becoming matter she didn't mean I'm becoming solid matter she was becoming a kind of etheric matter there were other dimensions that preceded the physical dimension where there were finer forms of matter and dark matter may very well be you know the analog there matter that we really can't see So that you know, it's uh, matter at a a possibly a higher vibrational level, such that it's not detectable in you know in our spectrum of light. And Sophia would have gone through a psychic dimension and the dimension, you know, dimensions of, of fine matter before Sophia and the souls that followed her essentially came down into the densest form of matter, which is the matter that we know of in the material world. Now. The strange thing is even the particles, subatomic particles that our scientists identify, I mean, atoms are like 99% light energy and space. They're only 1% of actual matter. And the delusion that we have is that we are focused on the 1% to the exclusion of the 99%. We're focused on that which, you know constitutes or helps constitute things that we can see and knock on and touch, but we don't understand that even those things are light energy and matter at their core. Now, what we think of as solid matter is is a bunch of stuff that's moving around with lots of space in between it and everything else. So, to a large extent, what we experience as the physical world is kind of a form of illusion.
0: I'm talking with Peter Canova. He's the author of this book we've been talking about, Quantum Spirituality, Science, Gnostic Mysticism, and Connecting with Source Consciousness. And this is The Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick, Central Vermont Community Radio. I would love for you to talk about the quantum nature of light and how light or photons are in simultaneous communication and interconnection with each other throughout the universe, and also how photons respond to human awareness and DNA.
1: Yeah, well, photons basically are particles of light, and the whole world really consists of light energy. And I would say intelligent light energy. It's light energy that contains essentially instructions or algorithms that give form and shape to everything that we know. So there's an intelligence and an intention behind this light energy. But one of the things that scientists noticed towards the last century was that particles become entangled so that, for instance, you can take a particle of light And it can have a corresponding particle that's hundreds of millions of light years away. Let me give an example to make it more real to people. Let's say there's a version of you on Earth and a version of you on Mars. And I pinch the version of you on Earth and the version on Mars says, ouch, at exactly the same time. That's called entanglement, quantum entanglement. And these particles are somehow connected regardless of distance, regardless of space, And they're connected and they communicate instantaneously even faster than the speed of light. Now, how is that possible? You don't have telephone wires in between them. They're not using fiber optics or radio signals, but somehow they're instantly communicating and correlating to one another. So this phenomenon led scientists to speculate that, you know what, maybe instead of a world of separate appearances... What we really are is kind of a giant holographic movie, and holograms have a property where you can take any part of a hologram and slice it and dice it, no matter what shape. Each of those pieces will contain the image of the whole. That's a property of a hologram. So essentially, a whole body of theory started to come about known as the holographic universe theory that we are just one giant holographic cosmic projection and that we're really all kind of connected in this. But, you know, we just have the appearance of separation, but in reality, everything is kind of a, a coherent projection of energy. And they further gained credibility in this theory when they started studying black holes and, they started to realize that the information that's inside a black hole that makes a black hole what it is, the information of a black hole you would think is inside the black hole, but it's not. It's on the outside. It's on the horizon. So to give a more understandable example, let's say you have a bucket and inside this bucket is our universe. So us, the planets, the stars, the comings and goings of our daily lives and everything all happen inside this universal bucket. That's the info. That's what's called the information. So you would think that the information is inside the bucket. But what the scientists found in studying the black holes was that's not true. The information is not in the bucket. It's on the outside of the bucket. It's on the skin of the bucket, the two dimensional skin of the bucket, and it's projected inward to give the appearance of three dimensional volume that you'd have inside the bucket. So again, this seemed to really give credence. So the whole idea of the world and the universe being kind of a giant holographic projection. And that's why you probably have the ancients, like the Hindus, calling the world Maya or illusion. And the Gnostics essentially said the same thing, that the world we live in is kind of a projected illusion. So it's pretty interesting stuff, but it seems that it's being borne out in quantum physics as well as mystical texts.
0: Yeah, that's Utterly fascinating. And the the scientific aspect of it sounds so counterintuitive for the three-dimensional, you know, just to put it in those terms, the three-dimensional experience not being the actual source, but rather the two-dimensional, the quote unquote two-dimensional nature of that hologram. It's just totally counterintuitive.
1: Welcome to the world of quantum physics. If you delve into quantum physics, the very first real thing you realize is that everything is counterintuitive. Nothing is as it seems. You've kind of gone down the rabbit hole and you're Alice in Wonderland and nothing is really as, as it seems. And yet the astonishing thing is all those crazy things that we talk about, the fact that you know, 99% light energy in space and yet the appearance of solidity and so forth, The fact that there's such a thing as solid matter, when scientists have verified, there is no such thing as particles. Particles do not exist. Even Max Planck, the founder of quantum physics back in 1900, said that I can assure you of one thing, particles as such do not exist. What exists is an intelligent mind, a force or a vibration that brings together the appearance of these particles. So essentially, Max Planck nailed it when he said that this is all the projection of a source consciousness. So, I mean, this is pretty remarkable coming from the founder of quantum physics. This wasn't Swami Ramalama Ding Dong, you know, talking to some group of naive disciples. I mean, this guy's the father of quantum physics saying these things. So yeah, everything about the quantum world is counterintuitive. Yet the fascinating thing is, It is the basis that makes up everything we know as reality, the visible world.
0: Yeah, it's utterly, utterly fascinating. I love this stuff. And getting back to the three-dimensional world that we are so familiar with and assume to be reality because we're immersed in it and it is our experience of reality. And yet what quantum physics is telling us and what the Gnostics were saying as well is that that's just a projected illusion out of the field of of energy and light.
1: Yes, that's an accurate statement.
0: And I've been chewing on this for decades, ever since I read Michael Talbot's The Holographic Universe. And yeah. I thrive on this kind of paradoxical, counterintuitive stuff. It kind of reaffirms what I have sensed since childhood, that everything that everybody thinks they know about everything is not only wrong, but completely and utterly wrong. And yet I had no way of putting that into words or or even conceptualizing. And I just had this, this deep inner sense of that.
1: There's a reason for that, because we in truth are not what we appear to be. We in truth are not what we think we are. We are spiritual energy. We happen to be spiritual energy that is temporarily trapped in what we perceive as material forms, but we're like a blip in the quantum field. So, I mean, look, in Florida, sometimes we used to get something called water spouts. Water spouts are essentially tornadoes that form over water. And you can see the smooth water, and all of a sudden, you see this tornado-like swirl arising from the water and forming a visible you know, vortex, a whirling vortex that you really don't want to be near. But you can liken it to the fact that the quantum field is that smooth surface of the river or the water. And the blip in that field, in this case, would be this water spout. Now, the water spout arises from, and it's part of this smooth energy field, but it's a temporary disturbance or blemish in that field. And essentially, that's what quantum science is telling us, that what we perceive as reality is kind of a blemish or or a ripple or a deviation from the smooth operation of the underlying energy field itself. So essentially, we are an illusion, and that's why everything seems counterintuitive when we really try to pierce the veil of the illusion, because what we're looking at is the source from which the illusion comes from, from which the illusion arises. We are part of that source, but it's kind of like a cul-de-sac, okay? It's kind of like a little stem off the main highway going down a cul-de-sac, and we we essentially, our reality is one of those cul-de-sacs.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating. It's sort of like we, we tripped and fell into a hole, and, and that's our current experience of reality.
1: Yeah, and there's certainly a lot of implications in the Gnostic text that we did kind of fall into a black hole. We fell into a place that we really weren't meant to be. that there's certainly a stream in Gnosticism that indicates that we fell into a dimension or a zone that we weren't really supposed to be in. Now kind we've got to work our way back out.
0: A kind of unconsciously self-created hole.
1: Yes, we certainly had a part in the creation of it. So it gets into some interesting speculation. I mean, the chances are there was a, in the Gnostic text, essentially, they say that there was a parallel world to ours, but it was at a higher vibration. It wasn't a material world. It was the blueprint for the universe in the mind of God, and that the beings like Sophia essentially messed around with that plan, messed around with that template, and essentially out of that true template, out of that true archetypal vibration of a world, they fashioned this lower form, this material world, which was a pale copy, a pale imitation of the original plan. And that's the way not only the Gnostics, but a lot of other spiritual traditions perceived that the spirits created essentially an imperfect reflection of what was a divine plan. And actually, there are even some writings from early church fathers Papias, P A P I A S. They had an interesting fragment called the Fragment of Papias, in which he says that, you know, the angels kind of messed around with the divine plan and they blew it.
0: And we are smaller reflections on all of those elements, angels and other archetypes. So it sounds like our own individual interaction, which is usually totally unconscious with that chaos that you spoke of earlier helps create these kind of holes as you mentioned these kind of cul-de-sacs that we fall into and then have to find our way out of and that's often what's referred to as awakening
1: right yeah i mean remember human consciousness albeit far removed is still a part of the stream of consciousness that created everything albeit removed in you know diluted forms and you know, full of ignorance and so forth. So what you hear about co-creation, which sounds like, you know, sort of new age cliche, there is definitely a basis to it. And we used our power, our our conscious creative power to build this cul-de-sac in effect. And now we're kind of lost in it. It's like, you know, it's kind of like in the old Star Trek series where they had that holodeck. And, you know, they could actually project themselves into these holographic creations. And they seem very real, like, you know, they were really now immersed in the world. They were the programmer, but they became lost in their own program. And essentially, that seems like what we did.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a great metaphor for that. Because after you've spent enough time on the holodeck in those simulations, you could eventually forget that you chose to go into that space and that you actually created and, and, and,
1: and that whole that whole idea of forgetting and remembrance is really the key we are forgotten and our we we know everything but we've forgotten it. and our task is not so much to learn but to remember i believe there was a time when the spirits came into material form where they could go in and out of material form at will but soon they began to identify where their creations and they began to identify reality With the boundaries of their skin they became lost in what they had you know created and our task is to remember is to reawaken and remember what we are we contain all all the things that we create as human beings computers and everything else are just reflections of operations that are already in effect at a higher level all we're doing is remembering those characteristics of them and so we replicate them when we think we've created something new when all we've done is remember an archetypal blueprint that's already in existence somewhere. So that's really, you know, our task and, you know, it gets back to what I said that, you know, there is no such thing as original sin. The only sin for the gnostics was forgetting what we were. And the great task is remembering.
0: Right. And that forgetting separates us from who we are and our understanding of our source, our source nature. Right. yes exactly yeah i just love all this stuff because it kind of short circuits my linear brain and helps to open up potential portals into a more direct experience of other dimensional ways of relating to things
1: i wrote quantum spirituality quantum spirituality incidentally was not my first work my first work was a trilogy called the first souls trilogy about the first spirits to incorporate or embody in material existence and it traces their lives over different epochs of history. I actually we're working on getting the first book into a TV series right now. But essentially the book was written it's a geopolitical thriller but the underpinning of the book is you know is the spiritual wisdom and quantum spirituality was actually the research 35 or 40 years of research that went into the writing of the fictional trilogy. But I did the fictional trilogy first and then I said, okay, you know, now that that fan base, let me, you know, give the research behind what it is so people can kind of look behind the scenes, you know, like they do nowadays, the making of a movie. Well, you know, quantum spirituality in a lot of ways was the making of the trilogy and essentially really what it is is a roadmap for people to help them to have extraordinary experiences with higher consciousness, which I had in my twenties and it changed my life and I wanted to be able to. In knowing that I'm not unique, I might have had unique experiences, but I'm not unique in the ability to contact this information. Knowing that everybody can, I wanted to give people a kind of a roadmap in order to help them experience higher consciousness, have them have their own extraordinary experiences. And like any good map, you have to have at least two coordinates north and south, east or west, you know, yin and yang. And in this case, the coordinates that I used were science and mysticism. So I think that that's really powerful because when you see that science and ancient mystical wisdom, and it's demonstrated to you like in this book that essentially they're saying the same thing about the nature and the operation of the creation, you know, you can start moving beyond faith and say, you know, wow, there really is something to this. But ultimately, you want to get to the point where you have your own direct experiences because you don't want to take my word for it. You don't want to take somebody else's word for it. That's faith. The difference is, you know, if somebody tells you that fire burns, if you don't know what fire is and somebody tells you that fire burns, you can take it on faith that they're correct. But you don't really know for sure until you stick your hand in the fire. So I'm trying to get people to be able to stick their hands in the fire and have their own experiences, have their own revelations, essentially become their own prophets in order to realize Things that the Gnostics realized have experiences that people like myself had. And so this book is a series of signposts of information, of powerful information, in order to help guide people along their spiritual journey and inspire them that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. There is a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow.
0: And we are actually multi dimensional beings far beyond the three dimensional. Reality or illusion of reality that we're currently lost in or stuck in. Without question. And that just reminded me of this old book called Flatland, which was this interaction between two dimensional beings and having an encounter with a three dimensional being, which then through our own imagination, we can extrapolate what it might be like for us in three dimensional consciousness to experience four dimensional or higher dimensional beings or experiences
1: yeah i'm familiar with that book yeah yeah for sure and the way we you know experience that is not so much taking a physical journey into these dimensions the way we enter these dimensions is through consciousness which is the way the gnostic masters essentially penetrated the higher dimensions to bring back all this information that allowed them to essentially give us the world's first quantum theory textbook two and three thousand years ago
0: So considering that we're operating, and they were operating through their physical bodies, how were they connecting with those higher levels of consciousness? I mean, Jung talks about imaginal space and other dimensions like that. Could you talk about that and also how Jungian psychology correlates with all of this?
1: Well, we don't really exactly know what state the Gnostic masters were in. I mean, I have to assume it was some form of a you know a deep meditative state where they were able to mind journey into you know these other dimensions and bring back this information, which is really kind of a what what shamans do. It's kind of a shamanic action, you know, setting foot in one dimension, bringing back that information to help people in this dimension. And we know that, In the ancient mystery schools, which basically stretched from India all the way to the British Isles, they would train adepts in various disciplines in order to mentally condition them to have these experiences. And it was much more scientific than what we would do today. Essentially, these these mystery schools were kind of like the Ivy League of the ancient world, the Ivy League of Spiritualism. And they would study mathematics, harmonics, all kinds of different things too bad we lost all that knowledge today because I think people would be much more spiritually enlightened than what we are. We've gone so far over to the uh, left brain activities of science that we've really forgotten, you know, formal training in the metaphysical aspects of existence, which they emphasized back in those days in the mystery schools. And, you know, Carl Jung was what I would call a spontaneous Gnostic. He had Gnostic visions and experiences in dreams. And, when he first read the Gnostic text, he essentially said, I found people who got there before me. In other words, they pretty much described almost everything that Jung was describing several thousand years ago. Of course, Jung's great contribution was contextualizing it for the modern age, for the modern people to be able to understand in psychological terms rather than in you know, mythical terms. And you know, Jung essentially had the same concept that there was one source – But it polarized itself into two aspects, yin and yang, male and female. And he understood that these aspects were reflected in each of us. He called it the anima and the animus. The anima was the male in all of us, and the anima was the female in all of us. So in other words, whether you're male or female, you contain aspects of both. You contain aspects of both these energies and polarities. And Jung, very much like the Gnostics, said that to the extent that you unite those, to the extent that they work in harmony, that's when you become an actualized being, an enlightened or unaware being. And this is exactly what Jesus said in the Gnostic Gospels. He proclaimed many times, when the two become one, you will move mountains. So there are many, many other aspects that I go into in the book of how Jungian depth psychology you know, reflected the Gnostic texts, But Those are just a couple of the important ones.
0: Yeah, and I wrote down some quotes from the book that probably come from different sources. There's, um, we humans are the bridge between heaven and earth, creatures from both worlds, thus we're quantum creatures. And then, blessed is the man who has known these things. He has brought heaven down to earth, and he has lifted earth to heaven.
1: Yeah. And my own personal feeling, I mean, we we are spirits having a human experience and our purpose is to spiritualize the material and bring the experience of the material back to spirit. So even though we can say it was a mistake, we came here and there's, there's always an ambiguity in my mind, even in the Gnostic texts of, you know, I think this was a purposeful mistake. I guess that's the best way I can describe it. I think this was a purposeful mistake where we were allowed to fall into this experience in order that spirit could experience itself in every facet of creation, including the lowest one, which would be inside a material or apparently material body. So if you really look at the fact that we have our origins in the world of light energy, What you can really understand is that we truly are a bridge between heaven and earth. And what we experience here is essentially transmitted back to spirit. And we also have the opportunity to spiritualize this world so that one day, perhaps, these veils will be lifted and there's no longer heaven and earth, but they essentially become one. And that's that's related to the quote that you just read about Jesus, what Jesus was saying. I think he's reaffirming my feeling about one day, you know, the potential is for this veil between the dimensions to be lifted and it all becomes kind of one.
0: Well, it seems inevitable in the sense that, as you said, this was a purpose, you you use the term purposeful mistake, but I would even discard the mistake part of it and say that this was an intentional, kind of an, an adventurous foray into the possibilities of direct experience, no matter the illusory consequences, which are just Temporary blips. Granted, they are kind of cosmic blips in that they can last for billions and billions of years. But still, this is, as you said earlier, this was a an intentional desire to experience itself.
1: Yeah, I think it can be looked at from several points of view. That's why I use the ambiguous term. Purposeful mistake, because I think you can look at it in in several different ways. And indeed, the Gnostics did look at it in several different ways. But I know we're getting to the end of our time here. And I just wanted to say that for those people that are interested in the book, which I think would really inspire and and give a lot of enlightening information to many people who are on the spiritual journey or just simply curious to understand better how the world itself works, both from a scientific and spiritual standpoint, go to my website, petercanova.com. That's P E T E R dot com. There's a wealth of information there. There's a portal to my own podcast, which is also called Quantum Spirituality. And also, you can um, even access the other fictional books I talked about in the trilogy, as well as uh, a way that you can purchase Quantum Spirituality. So hopefully, um, people who are listening here will visit the website, and I think you'll find it very much worth your while.
0: I'm actually fascinated to check out that trilogy of yours. And Do you have to run at this moment? Uh, I do. Okay. Well, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. And the last question I wanted to ask, if you have time, was how would you propose translating all of this into a way that we can effectively use it to transform our world, both individually and collectively?
1: Yeah, well, there is a couple chapters at the end of the book that are actually devoted as to how you can bring all this knowledge and information that I provide, how you can incorporate this to heighten your own spiritual practice to hopefully get to the point where you you start to have your own flow of information coming through. So you don't have to listen to people like me anymore, you can get it directly. And there's a lot of factors that are talked about on how to enhance the, your journey to be successful using, you know, imagination, visualization, desire and emotion and things like that. So that's all covered uh, in the book because the book is meant to be very practical. It gives a, a, a great body of information, but then it funnels down into the actual ways that people can use this to change their own lives. And of course, as they change their own lives, they can then go about and become agents of change in the larger context of the world.
0: Thank you so much for being on the show. It's been a pleasure to talk with you.
1: Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And be well. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye
0: -bye. That was Peter Canova. He's the author of the award-winning First Souls trilogy and the host of the Quantum Spirituality Podcast. And his new book that we've been talking about is Quantum Spirituality, Science, Gnostic Mysticism, and Connecting with Source Consciousness. Thank <smart noise> you. That's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other.